Hello and welcome to this special episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Catherine Haddon. It is 20 years since the US and UK went to war in Iraq. That decision, taken by President George W. Bush and Prime Minister Tony Blair, remains both the most controversial and consequential American and British foreign policy decision of the last quarter of a century. Its aftershocks and its legacies are still felt throughout the Middle East and in the politics and priorities of Washington and Westminster. Just over a year after the war began, Robin Butler, a former cabinet secretary, published his review of intelligence on weapons of mass destruction, better known as the Butler Review. The weapons were never found and the debate about the decision to go to war has never ended. Butler's review, which came after the Hutton inquiry and before the Chilcot inquiry, was a key milestone. So to mark the 20th anniversary of the start of the Iraq war, to look back at the key findings of his report and to ask how government has changed since and whether lessons have been learned, I'm delighted to be joined in the IFG studio by Robin Butler, Lord Butler. Thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Robin, let's start with the report. Did you have any doubts about taking it on? Well, my wife did. Uh, I was in Mexico when I was asked to do it. We'd visited the site of Teotihuacan, uh, and uh, it's outside Mexico City. And we were in the car on the way back. We had a guide. His phone rang, and he looked a bit puzzled and said, I think this must be for you. It's from 10 Downing Street. And it was Jonathan Powell. And he started by saying, Robin, your country needs you again. And uh, he asked me whether I would take on the chairing of this uh, review. At that point, the transmission cut out. And so I wasn't able to say yes or no. My wife urged me not to take it because she said it, she thought it would be a poison chalice. But partly, I suppose, out of vanity, but partly out of curiosity about why the intelligence seemed to have gone so wrong, I couldn't resist it. And so I rang back when I got to our hotel and said I would do it. And it was very soon after the start of the war, with rather a quick timetable you published in, in 2004. Was that too soon on reflection? Uh, did you feel you could speak to the people you needed to speak to or was actually the immediacy a help? Well, it was triggered the t- in the timing, I think, by the American uh, decision, George W. Bush's decision to set up the Rob Silverman inquiry because there was pressure in the United States when the uh, Iraq survey group went into Iraq, searched around and hadn't found any weapons. And uh, we, of course, had had the Hutton inquiry. Uh, My sense is that our government wouldn't have wanted to set up an inquiry if they could have helped it. But uh, it was the fact the Americans had done it, which really determined that it had to be done. And uh, you've mentioned your wife was worried it would be a poison chalice. Did you feel under pressure to make sure that it wouldn't seem like a whitewash? The media focused on the published intelligence dossiers in September 2002 and March 2003 was quite heated. Yes, I I did uh, very much uh, feel that, not least because when uh, I flew home uh, on the train on the way back from Gatwick, uh, there was a picture of uh, me, not a very flattering one, uh, suggesting that it would be a whitewash. Um, the, the moment when I knew that it certainly wouldn't be a whitewash was when I first saw the Joint Intelligence Committee reports, which had gone to ministers, and I saw 
the sentence, the intelligence is sporadic and patchy. Mm. And I recall there was much more certainty in the dossier which the government had published, and there was an obvious inconsistency. So I knew from that moment that uh, there would be something to say. And I mean, the intelligence was obviously the main focus of your report. We had those uh, intelligence dossiers. So the question of the the Joint Intelligence Committee putting things out into the public domain was part of it. Um, the the claim about uh, 45 minutes to launch uh, chemical and biological weapons was uh, something that had formed a big part of the, the Hutton inquiry. Um, but another, as I say, a key focus was on the Joint Intelligence Committee, which is the body that brings together intelligence assessments. You said in the report, in your final conclusions, that it was very important that the chair of the JIC be somebody with experience of dealing with ministers at a very senior level and be somebody demonstrably beyond influence. How important was that recommendation for you, but also for the intelligence community? Well, the big issue was um, whether there was, were, had been weapons of mass destruction, because the government's case for going to war, its legal case, uh, depended on Iraq being in breach of the Security Council uh, resolutions, and uh, that had to be the justification. And so the fact that the Iraq survey group had already been there and found no um, found no weapons uh, was uh, an extraordinary thing. And it did begin to appear, though it wasn't certain at that stage, that the intelligence had been wrong. And so the, really the whole purpose of the inquiry, which incidentally um, I and the uh, committee were required to uh, produce within five months, mm. um, was why had the intelligence gone wrong? And um, there were many facets uh, to that. Um, part of it, was, of course, was um, whether the JIC reports had been wrong, but also whether there'd been mistakes at, uh, at, at earlier stages. Now, you asked about the uh, chairman of the JIC being uh, in the last job. Um, one of the political aspects was that the British government was pretty determined to support the Americans uh, in their decision to take military action. And therefore, uh, a lot rode on the intelligence that there were weapons of mass destruction being right. So there was a lot of pressure at all levels, actually, um, of uh, the intelligence machinery, including the Joint Intelligence Committee. The role of the chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee was very important. And so a very important issue was whether the Joint Intelligence Community had produced, committee had produced a, an objective uh, assessment, or whether the chairman and the other members had been under political pressure, which had distorted their judgment. Uh, we felt that it was important for the future. This wasn't a by the way, a reflection on John Scarlett, who'd been the chairman, uh, we felt that it was important for the future that the objectivity of the Joint Intelligence Committee could should be absolutely protected. And that would best happen if its chair was somebody who, as it were, had nothing to gain from the government in the way of uh, future appointments. 
So that's what lay behind our recommendation that the future chairs of the Joint Intelligence Committee should be um, people who've both been used to dealing with politicians, but um, preferably would be in their last job. And you also focus a little bit on the role of the cabinet secretary, although they were there, uh, there was then going to be an inquiry uh, or a separate internal review of the splitting of the uh, intelligence and security coordinator role and the cabinet secretary. But just to step back a, a minute, because you had obviously been a cabinet secretary, how important did you find it when you were doing the job that you were plugged into uh, the latest intelligence assessments in order to do that job? Um, with cabinet? Well, when I was doing the job, um, I was uh, really very close to successive uh, prime ministers. Uh, I saw them most days. And therefore, I had to be in a position to discuss with them what was on their minds at the time. Uh, Now, for that reason, uh, the intelligence passed through me uh, to the principal private secretary and number 10 and thence to the Prime Minister. And I also had the support of the intelligence coordinator in the uh, Cabinet Office, um, as well as the other staff of the Cabinet Office, the uh, assessment staff, uh, and so on. Um, And so uh, I did feel that the Cabinet Secretary needs, as it were, to have access to all the material, including intelligence material, that's going to the Prime Minister, and I wasn't at all in favour of uh, that one of the intelligence role being split off. And uh, th- another aspect that you looked into was some of the decision making. It wasn't the formal uh, part of, of your inquiry, but you made some comments uh, in the report about the informality and circumscribed character of some of that decision making, and particularly uh, where Cabinet had not had access to papers that would have set out the intelligence. That led to the the criticism of so-called SOFA government. How did that manifest itself? Why did that end up in the report? Well, the, um, the decision to go to war was, of course, a very divisive one, um, both within the Labour Party, but also uh, within the Cabinet uh, itself. Uh, there were subsequently two senior ministerial resignations uh, over it. Uh, But um, the Prime Minister was, I think, thought it was the right thing, also determined to uh, support the Americans. And so the decision, I would say, was sold to uh, the Cabinet. The Cabinet had to be persuaded that it was the right decision. Now, I think one's got to remember the background to this, because um, this was new Labour. And within the government and within the cabinet itself, the apostles of new Labour were actually quite a small cell. And they had to persuade their old Labour members of the cabinet of the um, policies they wanted to adopt. And that ran right through uh, the certainly early days of the uh, of the Labour government, uh, and uh, so that's why I think that uh, Tony Blair uh, used to prepare decisions to put to the cabinet with a small group of like-minded cabinet ministers, and they then uh, sold it to the rest. And the result of that was the way the cabinet tended to do its business 
was presentations, oral presentations by the relevant Secretary of State, but not uh, the consideration of detailed papers with all the evidence. Uh, And uh, I certainly felt, and of course it was by that time five, six years after I'd been uh, Cabinet Secretary, that uh, this wasn't the best way of running the Cabinet. You had served different prime ministers. You had uh, obviously been there in Ted he- in, in number 10 in Bed- Ted Heath's government and you had served as cabinet secretary to Margaret Thatcher, John Major and then to Tony Blair. Does a lot of this stem from the character and the decision-making approach of the prime minister? Is there something more fundamental about cabinet government and how we do it in this country? Well, Tony Blair wasn't the first prime minister who had to sell the policy lines that he believed in to the rest of the cabinet. And that is always a challenge for the prime minister. It was for all the prime ministers I served. Ted Heath, Europe, uh, Harold Wilson, uh, various things. Uh, Margaret Thatcher decisively uh, had to persuade the cabinet to adopt her policies on lots of measures. John Major uh, had a very divisive time over Europe and the Maastricht uh, agreement and, of course, the closure of the coal pits and uh, Black Wednesday. So all prime ministers do uh, are faced with the challenge of getting cabinet support for the ways in which they want to take the government But you still get the best decisions, I think, if the cabinet can have a proper argument supported by all the evidence and all the facts. And uh, it's the role of the cabinet office to try to ensure that uh, the cabinet does have the information that it needs. And we often hear from uh, people inside government that there's sometimes a tension between Uh, doing what they would want to do in terms of uh, decision making. And then when you're dealing with something very fast moving or, or, um, you know, something that is quite heated, like a decision of whether to go to war, but also a crisis happening. And and lately with COVID, uh, we've seen, thanks to Matt Hancock, a slew of WhatsApps coming out about decision making uh, during the COVID crisis. What was your reaction to seeing those exchanges? Was it reminiscent? I haven't read them in detail. But I mean, certainly uh, the problem of government in general has got much worse. Things move much faster with uh, social media and 24-7 media. And uh, so um, governments are very often under pressure, but I think they are very much more under intense pressure now. And particularly during a crisis like covid Um, those uh, pressures must have been acute. I didn't see them from the inside. Uh, And of course, the other big development is that uh, WhatsApp messages and uh, social media messages are now available to be reviewed uh, subsequently. And um, I'm rather relieved that that was not the case when uh, I was a private secretary at number 10 or when I was uh, cabinet secretary. And uh, because I think, you know, some of those messages would be uh, informal, like the ones that uh, Matt Hancock uh, was involved in, which have now been disclosed. 
And uh, we we talked at the beginning about the speed of your report. Um, We're now facing a COVID inquiry that could take years similar to the Chilcot inquiry. Do you think there's a case for a shorter, quicker inquiry on decision making, particularly so that those inside government can learn lessons quickly? Because that was definitely a feature of your report. Yes, it uh, it was. Uh, I think I've got to say that um, the timing of uh, my report and the deadline was to some extent, um, I think, influenced by political um, considerations. Uh, there was going to be an election a year later, and I think the government wanted to have the report on this very embarrassing issue of why they'd gone to war on the basis of there being weapons of mass destruction and no weapons of mass destruction had been found. They wanted to get that report over and out of the way uh, in good time before the election. Interestingly, uh, the political pressures on the Americans were different um, because um, the American election was to be uh, in the autumn and um, George W. Bush didn't want the Rob Silverman report to come out before that. So he gave the Rob Silverman inquiry in the United States a longer deadline of a full year. Now, um, is it a good thing to have uh, rapid inquiries? I think it depends on the nature and purpose of the inquiry. Um, The Chilcot inquiry into Iraq, which followed mine, was really produced by the pressure of the bereaved who wanted to have a full account. In in other words, whereas my report was um, learning the lessons of a rather technical point, um, John Chilcott's needed to do justice to all the people who'd been involved. And I quite understand why that took longer. And, And there always is pressure now when things go wrong Um, that heads must roll and uh, to identify people who may have been at fault. And that requires a proper, fair, judicious uh, inquiry. Mine didn't require that. On your question about whether it would be helpful to have a pretty rapid report on the lessons to be learned from COVID, yes, I think it would, because we never know when the um, next... um, pandemic may hit us. And so the sooner we get we learn the lessons, the better. But if we do are to have a rapid report, then I think the uh, public's desire, as it were, to see scapegoats uh, wouldn't be fulfilled by it. How important do you think then the, the your report ended up being inside government? Because it did cut quite quickly. Um, the intelligence machine had been reviewing its processes along the way. Do you feel like it had report then, uh, had impact then, do you feel um, the legacy of it now was what you had, would have wanted it to be? Well, one of the things that struck me from the beginning was that the intelligence community, though defensive, were um, as anxious to find out what might have gone wrong uh, in order to learn the lessons from it as the inquiry was. And so we did get full cooperation from the uh, from the intelligence uh, community, and uh, that uh, that helped us a lot. Um, I think that uh, you know, for 
in other circumstances, I think things would have been different. We were also helped by the fact that because it was an intelligence issue, uh, we were able to take evidence in private. And, uh, you know, this wasn't, as it were, a public event. And uh, looking through back to that period of time, I have to say I discovered that your first interview uh, after running the inquiry back in December uh, 2004 uh, with The Spectator was with one Boris Johnson entitled How Not to Run a Country. Um, I've got to ask, at that time, did you see him becoming Prime Minister and do you think he heeded uh, any of your um, recommendations at the time? Yes, I think the report was um, actually carried out by Andrew Gilligan, who got into trouble leading up to the uh, Hutton inquiry because he suggested on the Today programme that the government had knowingly hmm. um, had uh, knowingly falsified uh, the evidence. But I do remember that Boris Johnson uh, sat in on the interview. No, I didn't envisage that uh, he would uh, ever emerge as, uh, as prime minister. Uh, I saw him very much at that stage as a very lively and interesting journalist. Lord Butler, thank you. And thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms, including this week's regular episode of Inside Briefing, in which we take a long look at the decisions of Boris Johnson during the COVID pandemic. Who knows, maybe we will return to discuss it in 20 years time. What is certain, however, is that discussion and arguments over the war in Iraq will be going on for many years to come. 